Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for granting us the opportunity once again to acknowledge your presence here with us and your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts and lives. Grant to us understanding. It's a difficult passage tonight, uh, one in which the scholars and the theologians and even the conservative ones aren't in total agreement about all the details, but thank you that they are in agreement about who's in control. And they are in agreement about the fact that there is going to be a sound defeat for the forces of evil. And thank you for all of that agreement that is there in the big areas and help us not to get too caught up in some of the conjectures and some of the little ones, even as we were uh, studying this morning in Titus. So thank you for your presence. Thank you for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. And I'd like to read about the sixth trumpet judgment. It's Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of, the man, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Not exactly pleasant reading, was it, tonight? Not exactly a pleasant time is it going to be here on earth. The last time we were in Revelation, we saw God's sovereign control of the future, also of the forces of evil, and also we saw his protection of his own people. If you remember what was going on with the locust judgment or the first woe that we were seeing before, God was completely in control and there were a lot of limitations placed on the forces of evil. We saw Satan being given the key to the bottomless pit or sometimes referred to as the shaft of the abyss in other translations, a place where demons are kept imprisoned. The worst of demons, in fact, are kept there and they're imprisoned until God allows them to be unleashed on the earth. But, but notice how often we say God will allow something. He will permit it or he will cause it, but God is the one who is completely in control. The reason for doing all of the things that he did before was so that at his predetermined time, 
the demons representing or resembling unique and these grotesque locusts, if you remember from our reading before, they could torment and they could torture people on the earth, not having God's seal on their foreheads, and they could do it for five months. But these people weren't killed. Five months of torture. They wish they could die. They wish that somehow they could be taken out of all of this misery, but it wasn't going to happen. They were in absolute agony. The agony that they experienced was likened to the sting of a scorpion, and it would last for five months, not for a few days, but for five months. And again, people would rather die than to endure that pain, but they couldn't. And what we found out, Satan and the demons' actions were limited to how they fit into God's plan of wrath. They were limited in a lot of ways. We found out that Satan was given the key. Satan didn't take a key. He was given a particular key. Later, that same key would be used against him to lock him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. We haven't gotten there yet. But the demons were limited to five months of torture, not six months, but exactly what God had in mind. They couldn't kill anyone, so they were limited that way. They couldn't touch those who were sealed, those whom God had placed his seal on their foreheads, And they had been incarcerated in this bottomless pit or the shaft of the abyss. You can see clearly the limitations that were placed on the forces of evil. It's obvious who's in control. Now, verse 12 here in chapter 9 will sound for us an ominous warning. It tells us the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. One of them we just read about a few moments ago, also known as the sixth trumpet judgment. So again this week, let's try to identify the actors, first of all, and in so doing, I believe that we'll more easily be able to understand the actions that are going on. First of all, the identity of the voice coming from the altar in verse 13. It says, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So the voice came from the four horns of the altar, but this was before God. So God is probably eliminated. It is probably not God the Father who is this voice that is in view here. We aren't actually told to whom the voice belonged. There is a lot of conjecture, and some will say, and I will agree with this, that it was the Lord Jesus himself The lamb was pictured earlier standing near the throne. That's back in chapter 5, verse 6. Could very well have been Jesus. Could have been Jesus because this was a voice of command. This was a voice that was obeyed by angels. He's the one who took the scroll. He's the one who broke the seals. He's the one who's at the center of all these judgments. So it very well could be the Lord Jesus who is the voice coming from the altar. But some will say it could have also been another angel a very powerful angel. Maybe the one John saw in the the last chapter, chapter 8, standing near the golden altar of incense. That's the one who traded the prayers of God's people for fire from the altar, hurled it to the earth, and began these seven trumpet judgments. It could have been him, but we're not told. Because we're not told, it probably isn't all that important. 
Remember this morning, if you were with us, we were talking about Titus and getting all worked up about some of the uh, conjectures that we can have. This is one of those areas where it is not a test of orthodoxy to determine where that voice is coming from. If somebody disagrees with your impression of what that is, it really doesn't matter all that much. But the voice came from the four horns. They're small protrusions on each corner of the golden altar that is there before God himself. We've seen this altar twice in Revelation so far, both times in conjunction with martyrs, and God's response to their pleas to him to act against their killers. So we have an indication that action is more than likely on the way, and that's what actually does happen. The identity of the four angels in verses 14 and 15, let's see if we can identify who they are. Because this sixth angel who had the trumpet, it was told, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So these four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So who were these four angels? They had been bound, it tells us, at the river Euphrates. Now, I take that very literally. I believe that they were in bondage, they were incarcerated, they were kept back for a long period of time. Traditionally, the enemies of God's people marched on Israel from that direction. And so I take it very literally that there was a release of these particular four angels and that they were there at that particular place. And I believe that they were fallen angels. I believe that they were fallen angels who had followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God. There's no reason why good angels would be bound The good angels could have been reserved for a particular time and place, but not bound. More wicked demons are probably what we see here on the loose. Also because holy angels always perfectly carry out God's will. There's no need for him to restrain them from opposing his will. If you remember again from verse 15 here, it's clear God has done this. God is absolutely in control. He has a plan. He has a program. And did you notice he has a definite hour? A definite hour when this was to take place, a a specific day and month and year. But it starts out with the hour, the very hour that this is supposed to take place. These four demons were kept ready for that very hour. One commentator says this, These angels being prepared for precisely this moment points to God's meticulous sovereignty. God has left nothing to chance. These events are depicted as taking place exactly when God has appointed them to take place. You know how it says in the scripture that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, the very steps, the very hour here is in view, and this has been prophesied for a long, long time prior to this, and now that hour, that particular hour, had come. God had been the one to do this, but it causes me to ask a question like this. Do you think God has a calendar? I don't think he has a calendar, do you? I wish he did, and I wish we could see it, because this would have been on his calendar for a long time before it happened. You could go look on that refrigerator in heaven, and you could see this very hour this is going to happen. And that's the way that it is with the Lord. What is the result of all that these four angels are going to do? This is really scary. When you stop to think about this, 
one-third of mankind will be destroyed. Now, add to that the one-quarter of mankind destroyed during the fourth seal judgment. Do you know what that is if you do that math? One half of the world's population at the time of the beginning of the tribulation is now gone. The population of the earth has been cut in half. When you do that math, there are a quarter already destroyed, a third of mankind destroyed here. That's a half of the world's population at the time of the tribulation when it began that is now gone. But that's not all. To get to the exact fraction, we have to add those killed during the other judgments that haven't been totaled. They haven't been tallied up yet. Those killed by the wars and the famines and the disease of some of the other judgments that have taken place. So you can see that the rest of the people left on earth should certainly have taken notice by now that something is going on. Something huge and colossal is going on on the planet. Death had taken a holiday during the fifth trumpet judgment. Remember, for five months, people were tortured. They were in agony, but they were not killed. Death had taken a holiday, but the holiday is now over. Now returns with a vengeance. Let's look at the identity of the 200 million mounted troops. And it's very interesting as we look at the beginning of verse 16. We look at that and... We're, we're told that the, uh, in verse 15, the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, they were released to kill a third of mankind. And then out of nowhere in verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Where did they come from? They, they came out of nowhere. All of a sudden, there is this huge body of troops When you do the math again here, that's 200 million mounted troops. Uh, The expression is here, they're mounted, and they're horses that are seen in this vision, and there were riders on those horses. So there are 200 million mounted horsemen riding horses at this particular time. Who are they? Again, they've come out of nowhere. And incidentally, if you noticed in verse 16, this was not an estimate by John. It wasn't a guess. He was not evangelistically speaking. He wasn't just saying there are a lot of people, so I'll call it 200 million. He actually says here in verse 16, I heard their number. A special point is made out of that. 200 million mounted troops on horses coming out of nowhere, and the number of them is given to us before anything else is given about them. Now, in their close proximity in this context, one would have to figure they're in league with the four demons or the four angels who have been released. They're the instruments of the destruction the four demons have been commissioned to accomplish. And so that third of mankind that is going to be destroyed is going to be destroyed in league with the four demons and these 200 million troops that are going to be released. They are the instruments of the destruction that the four demons have been commissioned by God to accomplish. So who are they? Look at verse 17. This is how they're described. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them And the ones who rode them wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. 
and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. That's an interesting description. And uh, those of you that have been around for a long time have probably heard them identified as any of a number of possibilities, and that still goes on today. The horses and the riders described here could refer to a human army. And there are a number of people who will say that this is an actual human army. There are those who strongly favor that. They believe that it may even be the same army described in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, that comes out of the east. I don't believe so because that number of that army isn't given, and it takes place during the sixth bowl judgment, not during this particular judgment. So I I don't think that's correct, but it still could be a human army. And I'm not going to rule that out. Some of us a long time ago were brought up under the fact that this was a human army, and I'll mention that in just a few moments. But the conjecture runs rampant here. Some think it could be an animal or an insect invasion of some kind, that it's figuratively portrayed here, that it's not meant to be taken literally, or even literally through the eyes of somebody who can't see through what what we know today, somebody looking from uh, 21st century items from first century eyes. But others feel... It's a human army with weapons and gas masks and all sorts of other things that is in view here. Our nuclear-minded friend that I've mentioned from time to time, Hal Lindsey, he thinks that this could be some kind of mobilized ballistic missile launchers, the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur part of a thermonuclear war. Understand this. When John wrote this, do you realize there were not 200 million people in the world at that particular time? So when he wrote that... People looking at this would think there's no way this is ever going to be possible, especially if this is supposed to be a human army. But if you recall, some of you that are a little older, on May 21st, 1965, Time magazine reported that the Chinese military numbered 200 million for the first time in the history of mankind. There was a 200 million man army. The Chinese had it that would put them in the same geographical distinction as we've read here. So it is a human possibility according to the numbers that we have right now. It could be a reference to the Chinese, and we'll mention a little bit more about that later. If you do any reading about this on the Internet or if you do any studies and go to the library, anybody still go to libraries? I'm sure a lot of people still go to libraries. But if you do any studies on this, uh, it's interesting. Has anybody ever come across the name Walid Shubat? Anybody come across that name? I hadn't either until this past week. But Walid Shubat is a radical, was a radicalized Muslim. He converted to Christianity in 1994, and he has a lot to say about prophecy. And he has a particular view. He asks this question. Will Israel someday cry out, the 200 million Chinese are coming? He says, perhaps they will cry out, the Russians are coming. Well, such an army of 200 million will definitely include Chinese, he says, but it will not be China. And while it will definitely include nations that were part of Russia, it will not be Russia. And we are already seeing the nations working to unite whose armies constitute even more than 200 million men. But the enemies who are preparing to come against Jerusalem will deny the Trinity and will all be, his conclusion, will all be Muslim. 
He's got some very interesting things that are going on. If you can see the screen, you can see, you can see the countries that are coming. And you can see that a number of them are part of where Russia used to be. Some of the old USSR are there. Uh, many of which have a huge Muslim influence now, as there is an influence in parts of China and Russia as well. And so his conclusion is, yes, 200 million uh, troops could be coming from that direction, but you don't have to limit them to China. There is now the Muslim influence. And then he, he goes into great detail in many of his articles. It's something that if you have a weak stomach for things like this, you don't want to read. But he talks about how under the, the whole union of, of Muslims, how this could, could be something that would work out very, very easily in the future. So he says, this is going to be the Muslims. So we've got some people who are saying, first of all, these are humans that are coming. It's a human army. And they say that it is coming from China. Others say, we agree that it's a human army, but it's not going to come from China alone. There will be some coming from China, but there will be others coming from all the stands that used to be part of the, uh, the USSR. So you can see that it gets, it gets to be full of conjecture. And uh, the question is, is it something worth arguing about? Is it something worth deciding that somebody who doesn't agree with me is unorthodox or I don't have to fellowship or I shouldn't be fellowshipping with them? John Walvert, an old name in prophecy, but still a well-respected one, asked the question, why should they be bound in or at the river Euphrates? The answer seems to be that the vision concerns an invasion from the Orient. And he quotes Alfred, There is nothing in the text to prevent the great river Euphrates from being meant literally. So again, we've got scholars who are saying, take this literally. It's a 200 million person army coming from the east. And we won't get hung up on exactly where in the east. But there are some who will say directly from the Euphrates. At the same time, there are others who will say, wait, there's no way this can be a human army. It's ridiculous to even think about this being a human army. It would be impossible to supply, transport, and maintain an army of this size all over the world. This would be the largest military force ever known to mankind. Besides that, the figurative language used to describe the horses that are here suggests that this is a supernatural rather than a human force, as does the fact that it is commanded by the four newly released demons. So you can see where there would be those who might be skeptical about this being a human army, and they would say, you can't supply that. You can't possibly expect that to happen. The alternative is to ascribe these 200 million mounted troops to the demonic realm. That is, that they are more demons. We've seen some already, but these are more demons following the four who had been kept ready to lead their fellow demons at this particular time. So we've got a lot of possibilities that are going on here. And if you like to read things like Walid Shobat, um, he even will say, here's a picture of a, a bunch of flags of different countries, Muslim countries, of those that were pictured a little bit earlier. And if you read about these flags, they're fiery red, they're hyacinth, they're sulfur yellow. They're the same colors that are described here in what we're reading. And so uh, there are people who can go really off on these things. And there are a lot of details. But when we were, when we were young, the late great planet Earth, 
It was going to be, and Hal Lindsey, it was going to be the Chinese. It was going to be 200 million of them. There was a road being built. They were, they were having tons of horses developed, uh, and these were going to be literally 200 million horsemen who were going to be coming from China. And a lot of people believe that at that time. Fewer do now, and many will say, it's just all conjecture. We're going to have to wait and see. But remember, we're going to wait and see from another perspective. We won't be here to see it, but we'll be somewhere else when it happens, and we'll be able to see that as well. So alternative here is we see these 200 million coming, and we see them as being demonic forces. Charles Ryrie summarized the dilemma that we kind of face here in a very succinct way. He said, the 200 million creatures who compose this supernatural cavalry may be human beings or demons or demon-possessed humans. There's your answer. <laughs> that's, and that's where we have to stand. That's where we're forced to stand at this particular time. There's no point in trying to accumulate all of the latest happenings and try to figure out exactly how God is going to do what he's going to do. We know he's going to do it. What did these 200 million look like? Well, the riders had colorful breastplates. They were a combination, again, of these three colors, fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. Their heads, the heads of the horses, that is, resembled the heads of lions. They were like them. It doesn't say they were lions' heads, but they resembled them. Out of their mouths came three forms of destruction, color-coordinated with the colors on their breastplates. There was fire corresponding to the fiery red flaming color on the breastplates. There was smoke, corresponding to the blue on the breastplate. And there was sulfur, corresponding to the yellow as sulfur. What we know for sure, a third of mankind was killed by whomever these 200 million were and whatever was coming out of their tails and their mouths. A third of mankind was killed. And incidentally, they're called three plagues. They were killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of these mouths. And it tells us the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails were like, not, they weren't snakes, but they were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. I think it's safe to say, and we can say this on solid ground, these are not ordinary horses. Just like we didn't have ordinary locusts. These are not ordinary horses. But that's what John saw. And some say John saw that through first century eyes, looking at the same vision from the 21st century. We might be able to pin down a little more exactly what he saw. And then the conjectures run rampant. Maybe helicopters and tanks or drones or something brand new that our government hasn't yet unveiled for us, but it's there. And the governments of the world have all of these weapons in hiding, and it could be something else that is coming out. could be rocket launchers, but the results are what's significant. People will be killed. A lot of people will be killed. And the earth will not be half the size and population that it was before the tribulation begins. Here's something that's very interesting. The reaction of the world's survivors. It's astounding. Can you imagine if half of the people on the planet were gone? 
and there was a logical explanation for what was going on. There were 144,000 evangelists going around telling everybody they needed to turn to God. There would be other indications of people who were here who would be turning to God, who would be evidence of changed lives, and people who would be testifying for the Lord Jesus. And the reaction that, that we read about in verses 20 and 21 is astounding. The rest of mankind who were not killed, and again it's referred to as plagues, by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So the question, did this spectacular judgment cause the survivors to sit up and take notice, to repent of their evil and turn to God? And unfortunately, the answer is clearly given to us here. No, it did not cause them to repent. They kept right on with their sin. They did not repent of the works of their hands. Five particular sins are itemized here. They may be the five most prominent sins of the tribulation at that particular time, which is why they're listed that way. Number one, they did not stop worshiping demons and idols of wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. They did not stop worshiping them. They chose to continue worshiping idols. They chose after seeing the power the real power of a supreme God, they chose to worship that which is no better than our pews that are here. We could decide to worship our pews. They're made out of wood, but that wouldn't do us any better than it's going to do them at that particular time. Will you turn with me, please, to John chapter 3? We get a little bit of insight into people who are like this. John chapter 3, just a couple of verses or a few verses after John 3.16 When we get to verse 19, very interesting. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the point being here, they made a choice. They want to worship demons. They want to worship idols. They want to defy the living God. Why? Because they can get away with it, they think. There's no light there. There's nothing to expose their dark deeds. The demons and the idols are not going to call them up short for the way that they're living their lives. So, so why not worship them instead? There's no moral accountability to anything. And it shows us once again that when there are those who deliberately reject the Lord Jesus, and they try to give us reasons sometimes why they do that, and they try to say, well, it might be a problem of evil. How could a good God allow evil on the planet and all that sort of thing? That's not what John three nineteen to 21 says. It is not an intellectual problem that they have. It is a moral problem. 
They do not want to subject themselves to the light because their deeds are evil and they would rather continue with their evil deeds. It is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral one. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's a willful refusal to change their ways. I don't think that any of us should be thinking in terms of that smokescreen that many people will use, that they just don't know what's going on or they don't agree with what's going on or they don't want intellectually to assume that there's a God. That's a smokescreen. It's really, truly a problem of morals. Now, I'm not sure who said what I'm about to put on the screen. I have read that it was D.L. Moody, and he may have been quoting. I have read that it's Mark Twain, and he may have been quoting. And I've read that it is Will Rogers. But somebody said this. It's not what we don't know that hurts us. It's what we do know and don't do. And that's what, where we find these people at this particular time. They know. They know exactly. They, they know and they don't do it. That's why they're in trouble. And that makes it a little hard for people to feel sorry for them and say, oh, those poor people, they didn't know any better, and look what happened to them. They absolutely knew better, and God did everything possible over and over again to display his power, his rightness, his righteousness, everything about him, his glory, his holiness. And they said, no, thank you, because we want to live in this immoral way that we're living. The second sin that is mentioned here that they were going to continue in, it says, nor did they repent of their murders. I'm ahead of myself on the screen here. But nor did they repent of themselves for their murders. And same thing with their magic arts. And this particular Greek word, pharmakeus, from pharmakon, what word do you think we get from that? pharmaceuticals and pharmacy and drugs. So they didn't want to repent of that either. That's magic arts, but it's really a drug. It's a spell-giving potion. The King James refers to this as sorcerers. There's an incredibly close connection in the Bible between the occult and the drug world. Satan and drugs are very, very close allies And we've seen that in many cases in the scripture where we see this word used in this connection. One writer says this, Drugs in the ancient world were used to dull the senses and induce a state suitable for religious experiences such as seances, witchcraft, incantations, and cavorting with mediums. And that tells us once again the same thing that we've been seeing. They would prefer... Instead of the almighty God of the universe, they would prefer demons and idols that are made out of material objects. Fourthly, the sin that they want to continue on is their sexual immorality. And that's the the, the word porneia, which is really um, the word that describes any improper sexual activity. Uh, You name it, it's underneath that umbrella of porneia. They want to continue in those sexual sins. And we think the sexual sins are getting bad today. It's going to get worse and worse and worse, and they're going to be continuing in that. They're not repenting, it says, of their murders or their sorceries or the the drugs, uh, that sort of thing, or their sexual immorality or their thefts, it says. It is going to be a very, very godless time. What will it take for people to turn to God? It will take more than half of the world 
being destroyed before their very eyes. It will take more than God showing them that he, he can snap his finger or blink his eye and the next thing that's supposed to happen will happen. What it will take is a change of their will that says we will submit ourselves to God and not to our own preferences. We would rather live the way we want to live rather than the way God wants us to live. So therefore, they're going to get their choice and they're going to get the results of that. That's why it's so important that every one of us remember the missionary conference, not for the conference itself, but because of its reminder of the mandate that we do have, that great commission, that investment in eternity, because it's going to be a very ugly eternity for those who are going to be on this side of it rather than those who are going to be on the other side, which I I trust is us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that second woe has just been described to us. What an incredible scene is before us, no matter whether we're talking about a human army or whether we're talking about a demonic army or we're talking about uh, something in between. We understand that you're the one who's calling every shot here. You're the one who is releasing those four demonic figures at the very hour that it was destined for them to come. You're the very one who's protected his own. You're the very one who has given opportunity after opportunity for repentance. You're the very one who is grieved when people go their own way and choose to not go your way. And we thank you that you're that God and we're on your side. And we thank you so much for the account that you've given to us in your word. And we pray that you would help us to be able to help others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.